Welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation. Hello, I'm Ricky Dukes, Artistic Director of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Gavin Harrington Adidra, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I've already got the giggles, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> Uh, this week we're talking to actor and indeed Lazarus Associate Artist, Jamie O'Neill. Uh, Jamie's trained at the Port School and has appeared on stage and screen TV and film work. Uh, Jamie began his Lazarus journey in The Revengers Tragedy in 2015 at the Jack Studio Theatre. He then went on to play Mortimer in Edward II and he did that twice. Uh, firstly at the Tristan Bates Theatre uh, and then at the Greenwich Theatre in um, 2017 and 2018 respectively uh, and in 2019 he played the role of Herod, King Herod, in our new production of Oscar Wilde's Salome or Salome or one of the other hundred million ways that the audience pronounced it when booking at the box office which I found lovely and most recently he took on the title role in Macbeth which played in March 2020 uh, shortly before the pandemic and uh, lockdown one, as we're calling it. Thanks for joining us and welcome to Spotlight On, Jamie. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Welcome. So first off, kick off. How are you? How have you been? Uh, how are you keeping creative? How are you staying inspired uh, during lockdown three? Yeah, I've been I've been good. It's been a, obviously a very strange year. Um, but I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of getting out and about as much as I can, staying active, fit, trying to keep the head uh, all straightened out and stuff. Um, no, I've been I've been good, all things considered, fortunately. Yeah. And you said there about writing. What, what are you doing writing wise? Give us a little glimpse into what, what, what are you writing at the moment? Yeah, I've written a lot. I've, I've, so when lockdown kicked off, um like a lot of people i lost my job so i was working um as a side hustle in hospitality i was working in restaurants and bars and obviously that went along with the theaters just as Macbeth finished so i uh you know i was really struggling to get a job for quite a while actually i sent off maybe 50 60 applications to supermarkets and anything else that was going and i eventually finally got a job uh working night shifts in a warehouse um which I found pretty grueling, to be honest. I don't want to make too much of that because I'm aware that, you know, nurses and doctors are working night shifts, you know, in the NHS and they're, you know, literally saving lives. But I did find it tough. And so amongst other things that I've been writing, one of the things I've been working on most recently is a, uh, a pilot TV script about a, a guy like me who ends up working in a, you know, a supermarket warehouse. And uh, basically all the people he met um and meets while he's there uh which is completely inspired by all these you know people from completely different walks of life you know that i'd normally associate with you know people from china people from africa uh people from all different corners of europe who will work these jobs and we're all in it together um so yeah that, that that's one of the things i've been writing but loads loads of stuff you know anything to keep you know keep me creatively stimulated and writing, I imagine, um, you know, in some ways can be quite presumably very solitary when I've ever done sort of editing of plays or, you know, even creating a new adaptation of a play, particularly when we used to do quite a lot of Greek drama. Uh, it's quite solitary because you're doing it on your own, which is pretty COVID safe. So it's probably one of the uh, creative uh, things we could be doing right now that we can just be getting on with, I guess. So that's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it is a kind of solitary pursuit, um, which is, you know, which is quite nice, really. You know, you can be quite reflective in that place and, uh, you know, assess yourself as you, you know, you write things about where you are, you know. And I find, don't know about you, I find starting the hardest bit. So, you know, I could have a play in front of me and go, well, I know when we're going to do it. I know what theatre it is. I might know one of the actors or have an idea of the actors who are going to be in it. So I start, but I find starting quite difficult. But once I get going and give it the time, off we go. I'm not a writer, listeners, you know, let's just be honest. I'm not, I'm not a writer. It's ad uh, adapting and editing, really. That's what I'm mainly cutting 
<laughs> when it comes to the early modern stuff, it's really taking the machete knife to chapter or act five normally. But um, yeah, it, it's um, interesting when I get going, how do you find writing? Do you find it therapeutic? Do you find it easy? How do you, how do you get into it? No, I find it very difficult. I find it very difficult to start. Definitely. You, you, always, you can always find another job to do before you actually sit down, you know, get on with the work. Um, but once, you know, you hit these, these states, right, these flow states where time seems to just kind of disappear when you're really into it. Um, and, you know, a great deal of time is spent kind of pushing the boulder up the hill, I find. And then eventually you get these periods where it just starts rolling down. And that's when you really start kind of, you know, writing the things that you might hang on to and that really kind of mean something. But there is a lot of hard work that goes into just getting there. Um, and, you know, even when you do think you've written something good, you return to it a few weeks later and you're like, oh, God, you know, where's this? You know, what, what was I thinking here? But, uh, you know, you just got to keep cracking on with it, don't you? There's something wonderful there. I just, you said something about almost becoming lost in it you know time runs away and actually i think sometimes that's the that's the the joy of the creative process in that uh you can go you can look up at the clock and go god i have to be doing this all afternoon that's great and in normal times i think sometimes we'd say oh god i've used all that whole afternoon and i should have been doing something else but actually one thing i've enjoyed doing during lockdowns really mainly lockdown one and two was going actually i am going to spend all day doing this I am going to spend that time, you know, and there's been some day, and again, I'm not a designer, listeners, but this, part of my directing process is to kind of just put blank shapes into a set model, just to start thinking about space. And so there the, the were, I mean, not recently, but there were before Christmas afternoons where I'd be just cutting up pieces of card and, and foam board and putting it into a model and going, oh yeah, that's how that thing looks or feels. And, and sometimes I think, you know, speaking to people outside of theatre, they think you're mad. And we probably are to a certain extent, uh, aren't we all, I suppose. But but that's part of allowing your, your, your body, your brain, your creativity space to to create. Because it's not necessarily something we can just turn on and off, is it? It's something that certainly for me comes normally about 3 a.m. I don't quite know why. It's generally when you're trying to get to sleep and all of a sudden you can design the complete works of Shakespeare, which uh, which is a bit annoying because there's quite a lot of them. Um, you also mentioned about um, fitness, and according to your your agent's website, uh, you like swimming. Oh right, uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Actually. I didn't That's know this funny. about you. Apparently, you're a very you're a very good swimmer. I didn't know this. Well, about... Yeah, yeah, I was a very good swimmer when I was younger, particularly like really good. Um, when I was you know kind of growing a lot, so when I was probably between like seven and eleven, maybe I did a lot of swimming, kind of. Uh, every weekend, Saturday, Sunday in the mornings. Um, so that kind of muscle memory as such that you get when you're, you know, really young doing it all the time is still there. So I find something quite easy. It should really be stuff like something cooler, like surfing maybe. That's what should be on the, on the website. Not in London. Um, well, I do live by the Thames now in Greenwich. So, you know, I could get out there and try and, you know, catch something. <clears throat> it, might be, it might be a disease, but, you know... <laughs> Ah, I was going to say, I'm not sure there's that many waves, unless you, exactly. sort of follow, one of the, unless you follow one of the clippers, because they sort of churn it up, don't they? As they go past, you sort of see all the all the wildlife disperse. Anyway, this isn't Autumn Watch, everyone. Uh, listeners tuning in, thinking Chris Packham and Michaela Strachan's going to pop on in a minute. Yeah. Anyway, we might come back to animals and surfing and all sorts later. Um, here's an interesting one. So the whole idea about the Spotlight On uh, series is that we kind of look a bit beyond what the audience normally sees. So a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff. This is a really tricky question and actors normally cringe when they get asked it. So I don't mean to make you cringe, but um, can you tell us a bit about your kind of, well, firstly, tell us how you became an actor. That's a great way of starting. And then I wonder if you, if there's any words you could put to describing your process. Yeah, I guess I became an actor when I um, started training at drama school. So when I went to the poor school, that was probably where the journey began. Um, and my process differs constantly. Um, I suppose the one thing which is always, always there is just reading the play as many times as I can or reading the material as many times as I can. Um, and just, you know, trying to understand exactly what it is that me and this character have in common. Um, 
and even if it's something that is you know miles away from me like i don't have anything in common really um with somebody like king herod who is like traditionally quite a bit older he's you know um obviously this ornate king uh, and a tyrant but there's always there's always the, these slight things that you can grab onto and find that you really like about them as well which is kind of weird as well um, but it changes constantly. And as you say, you know, it's making me cringe now you ask me that question. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, uh, yeah, it, it, it's shifting always. I, under, I also often wonder that because why, I suppose it's, why is it a difficult question to ask or answer? Because, you know, it's, it's interesting when you ask maybe directors or designers, um, this, maybe we're a bit more conscious of our process, maybe. Even down to quite famous directors, I, I won't necessarily mention people's names, who insist they do not have a process or a practice or a technique, then go on to talk for about 10 minutes about how they do it, which therefore is their process or practice or technique, which I always find quite interesting. So I wonder whether there's something about an awareness, actually, an awareness of process. But I guess as actors, you're adaptable, aren't you? You're adapting potentially into other people's way of working or different scenarios maybe different circumstances yeah I think as well as like well not I mean if you'd asked me that question when I left drama school I probably could have given you you know a 10 bullet point answer of mm. um, a structure that I might work through to get somewhere but now actually like you know I, I'm just looking to be surprised as much as possible and if I read something and I have an initial response to it actually trying to find um, you know the complete opposite response and just allow myself to be taken in different directions. So, you know, I, I do work with discipline when I'm preparing for something, but there's certainly not a kind of structural routine that I'd say I go through. And that's interesting, actually. You can kind of come on to my, my next thought or next question, really, is in what do you look for in projects? You know, as, a, as an actor, is there a, a particular thing you've always got in mind? Do you kind of have a hit list of plays or characters you want to play? Or it, are you just very open to someone gets in touch and says, how about doing a bit of this? Yeah, well, certainly with you guys, that's always been the way it is. You know, you guys have always approached me with um, with parts. And, and again, you know, with Herod, that was a real, you know, a real surprise to be asked by you to kind of have a read of that play and, you know, consider it. Um, I mean, I suppose what drew me to him was just the challenge of it. Again, it's somebody completely different to me. Um, and certainly someone who, if I was to tell, you know, a relative, oh, I'm due to play this this role, they would be like, really, you? Um, and I quite <laughs> like that, you know, I yeah. like the stretch of it. I like the challenge of it. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, I don't have any kind of burning characters at the moment that I long to play. Again, I probably did, uh, you know, a few years ago. But basically, during lockdown, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading of plays that I've, you know, really kind of been sort of pathetically ignoring over the years. And I'm finding a lot of... Like what? what, what what's on the list? What's the plays you've been reading? Well, I read The Crucible. I only <gasps> read The Crucible this week. Oh, yeah. yes, please. Yeah, and finding a lot of kind of sympathy with characters who, you know, I wouldn't necessarily... Um, Kind of picture myself playing to somebody like Hale. I quite liked him, whereas I normally I'd like then. that and probably, yeah. Well, you know, her too. You know? I'm, yeah. you know, I like I like I like a challenge, and I also like surprises. <laughs> so yeah, um, be a surprise. Curtain goes up, and here's Abigail dancing. What do, what what's the first stage direction? Something along the lines of the girls dancing naked in the woods, and uh, I've never really seen a production of The Crucible that's actually started with with the the actual seeing it. I think it's it's referenced, isn't it, all the way through the first act, I think, if I remember rightly. You've read it more recently than me. Does the stage direction actually say that we have to see that? I'm not sure it does, actually. Maybe I've made that up. No, it doesn't, it doesn't start with that, but they, they are talking about it, yeah. Yeah, maybe I've directed in my head too many times that it actually starts with this huge sort of weird, mythical, magical, but quite ridiculous dancing in the woods type thing. But, um, but you try and get the rights to the Crucible listeners. Not a chance. Well, I was just about to say, yeah, you've, you've told me before. What's, what's the deal with that? Oh, well, I, I don't know whether we're allowed to say as it's going to go into public form. There's a certain big London theatre that did the produ a, a production of it a few years ago who are still clinging on 
for dear life to the rights. That's what I've been told anyway. That's what I've been led to believe. Okay, right, right. So they want to, presumably, want to do it again. Um, but yes, there's a big long list. And I'm like, right, come on, put us on the list. So we're, we're on the list somewhere. <laughs> I've been told by someone we're third in line. So that's not bad. It just depends on how long we have to wait till to get to number three. But um, we will see. Yeah, biggie, big epic classic. Yeah, really interesting. Um, good. We're going to have a little trip down memory lane now, if we if we will. So it all began uh, with the Revengers tragedy uh, back in 2015. And I wonder what you can remember of that time. Some people, you know, sometimes it's a bit like, oh, God, that's a long time ago. And sometimes things are really fresh as a daisy in your head, aren't they? What do you what do you remember of the time? I mean, that was it's funny, really. That was my first time ever going to Broccoli. So that, that play was done at the Broccoli Jack. Um, and that was my first time going to Broccoli, which is kind of crazy because just before the pandemic hit, I was living not far from there at all. Um, again, you know, fresh out of drama school. So I had my process. I had my, uh, I, I knew exactly what acting was and everything about it, um, which obviously, you know, I didn't and I certainly don't now. Um, but I, yeah, I, oh man. Yeah, I, I just I just remember, you know, probably the stuff I would do in rehearsals is maybe exactly what I maybe did when I performed it. You know, it was very structured, very rigid, very tight. I'd like to think now there's a bit more flexibility to the stuff I do. Um, but yeah, you know, a great experience. And obviously, the you know, the first time I worked with Lazarus, certainly the first time working in an ensemble like that. Um, at drama school, it was all very singular, the work that we did. And this was the first time that I was in a room with, I think it might have been, you know, 12 other people. And we worked for three weeks straight, um, constantly. And I never did that at drama school because people would always go away for their scenes. You know, you'd come and re rehearse scenes with two or three people. Um, you were never just in a room with 12 other people for that long. Really interesting because, of course, when you're working in a kind of comp company process, and that's how you create work. So that ensemble work, you sort of forget that everyone else or lots of other people don't work like that. And I always remember, actually this has happened a number of times, I think, Gavin, where actors maybe on press night have, have come over and we've been chatting. And of course, press night, you know, you might've had a few beers or a few glasses of wine or something, or maybe you're relaxed and you've sort of, you know, it's, it's happened now, you've opened it, haven't you? And, and actors have sort of quietly, and sometimes though confidently said, now I know you said that we'd be on stage all the time altogether. And I know you said we'd be in rehearsals altogether all of the time, but I didn't really realise that you meant all of the time uh, or on stage altogether all of the time. I didn't quite realise that you meant that. And it always used to make me chuckle because I sort of think I couldn't really be any clearer. Really. <laughs> yeah. And at what point did we realise during rehearsals? Actually, everyone's here all of the time. Um, but it's really interesting and it does, but it stops you in your tracks and it makes you realise, I suppose, and appreciate that's not how everyone works. And, and there are pros and cons to that, maybe. Um, but um, it's, it's really interesting hearing that because you... For some people, like you say, your first endeavour into that might be fantastic, but it also might be incredibly scary and frightening. I've got to do my text work and scene work in front of other people from the start, whereas maybe on a on sort of more traditional, in inverted commas, um, process, you might get at least a session or two, just you and the actor in the scene, I guess. Um, what, what do you, I'm putting you right on the spot here, are there things about the ensemble process uh, you know, what's the differences between that and a, maybe a play that rehearses with just the two people or three people in the scene? What's the pros and cons of you? Because you've done a few with us now. So what's, what's your things that you go, yes, I'm really looking forward to working with other people on that. And what's the pro, what's the cons as in, oh, that's tricky when there's other people in the room? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's it really depends on the people in the room, I guess, and the kind of cohesiveness that you can form with them. So when uh, everyone's on the same page and it's, you know, kind of firing on all cylinders, that ensemble work moves lightning fast and you kind of cover great swathes of the play really quickly and things just happen, right? You know, we, when I've, you know, uh, done plays of you, the staging comes from just moments in rehearsals and that all happens organically when the room's on fire. If it's not on fire, for whatever reason, you know, people aren't feeling well or, you know, whatever, you know, 
maybe the group doesn't, you know, they're just not all on the same page. Things take a long time and it's, you know, it's really hard work. But, you know, these, you know, when ensemble work is done right, it's so worth it. So these kind of tougher moments are worth going through and pushing through. Um, but yeah, I would say that's a, that's a pro and con to it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think over the years, maybe you know, after 15 years, maybe it's taken me too long to realise this. But yeah, it really is about the ingredients in the mixing bowl. If you think of the, uh, here we go, folks, a cooking analogy. Um, I think this is the first cooking analogy on the Spotlight Dog podcast, yeah. but that's because it's only the second one. Um, but yeah, mixing bowl of the rehearsal room, it's all about the ingredients, isn't it? And you've got to get the ingredients right. And actually part of that is not necessarily the award-winning or the uh, popular acting style or choices or people. Actually, sometimes it's about who's going to be great in the room and what's that dynamic. And you can't all be leads vying for attention but you can't all be quiet and reserved sitting in the corner, letting it flow either. So there's that real sort of dynamic and it really has um, certainly the last couple of years, I guess, have been reminded of that. Actually, when you're going on audition, you know, into auditions, you're thinking who could play what, but also who's going to bring what to that thing? Because absolutely. I think when the ensembles together and working together, things can happen lightning quick. I certainly remember on Macbeth, for example, uh, getting a show report one day where the show report, uh, sorry, rehearsal report, um, that actually there was just a couple of notes. And I thought, oh, we didn't really do a great deal that day, did we? And then the second day, the, the, the rehearsal report was four or five pages long. I went, blimey, we've done loads. And actually it's because the stuff on the second day was built from the first day. And the second day was really because it was built on the back of all the ensemble play exploration, which seemingly to the stage manager wasn't producing anything because there's nothing tangible to say, oh, the actor sits down here or picks up the prop there. It's all play, play, play. But the second day, because we do all that, I think we staged half an act in a day. And while well, we're, we're here with the apparition scene, everyone, okay, <laughs> you know, and you go, yeah. And of course, that's not, a, that's not magic or a mistake. That's stuff that's been built on by the energies of people's putting in, you know, and then you get to the, the baking stage and then you might do some icing in hopefully before previews, but sometimes the marzipan's not even on. Anyway, back to fruitcake next week. Um, yeah, really interesting. Um, and I wonder whether there's something about, you know, how aware or conscious of an actor are you in terms of your development over those years? You know, so from if you look back, have just you know, last one you've just done is Macbeth. Look back to something like Revenge's Tragedy. I wonder if there's anything that you could note on you as an actor between those what five years. Any observation? Just I, I'd like to think more openness. Like I said, you know, try not to be too rigid, and that rigidness comes from maybe fear. Um, you think it might be a confidence in what you're doing, but it, it, it's fear really. Um, openness to take risks. Um, and you know, just just go go with the flow of the energy in the room. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, Ricky, like as an actor, I find myself like this week, for example. I, you know, I've been doing classes and stuff, and I find that you know, I've I've made big strides in the last week. You know, um, things are constantly changing, and that's I think that's the great thing about having a, a passion uh, for like an art form or a pursuit is you know, in trying to get better at it, you're, you're constantly humbling yourself and reminding yourself, you know, how much further there is to go to try and be the best you can be. So, so much has changed in that time, so much. And I'm wondering, you know, because when we did Macbeth in uh, March 2020, there was already, at before, I think really, I was getting a good sense of it in the last week of rehearsal. And, and, and I think people can always tell when a show's going well with me because I start talking about bringing it back. <laughs> if I don't talk about bringing it back then that's it that's enough you know and already we hadn't even finished Macbeth and I thought this could be maybe maybe this should come back next year this has got something else to you know you're sure it's got room to grow and develop um that's not saying it wasn't finished but you sort of go there's something in this you know and um and of course as we've got longer and longer in the lockdowns going well we won't be back in 2021 could it come back in 2022 and i know we've had various sort of messages exchanges going no leave it Look, that was then we've got to move on now and then other times going yeah but to bring that back and be the last show we did but then the first show we did actually just sort of seeing what's happened in between and how does the play acknowledge that does the play acknowledge that 
but it'd be kind of fascinating in a way. And I'm sort of fearful of doing it again because what's happened in that preceding two years, maybe we're, maybe we're not all brilliant together anymore. That's the scary bit, you know, but I, I would true. think, but I would think that that group of people were a pretty special group of people that actually maybe there is something intrinsically within us as a group that back together in a room might be like old times, but, but a bit more mature because we've had two years away from it, you know. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. There's only one way to find out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite an exciting but scary prospect, right? But also I just sort of feel, and I do fear this actually, that, you know, if people have been out of practice for two years, I'm sure it's like riding a bike, you get back on it, right? But um, I know that first stay on the rehearsal room will be joyous, but at the same time, it will, I'm sure some people will come with trepidation and worry, can I still do it? How do you do yeah, this sure. thing? So I'm wondering whether the first show back, we need a bit of a boot camp, you know, almost, you know, you know, almost like a kind of two weeks, how low can you go, bit of Zeus squatting, you know, bit of yeah, the plank. the training montage. Yeah, <laughs> like we sort of, um, I mean, I know my body could certainly benefit from it, but you know, something where we get back and um, retext play communicate you know i don't know sounds very indulgent doesn't it people who are not fan of public funding of the arts won't be happy with that plan um but um it's 100 percent true though you know we, we, people haven't been like you know talking just even talking with other people in the same way like look at us now like we're talking over zoom you know it's very different when you're trying to listen to somebody and they're right in front of you and you know you're trying not to think about yourself it's you know i think that to be honest with you that sounds like it would be quite essential you know for a cast just get everyone used to just being in a room with each other and you know what when we speak actually like for example you know like people when they shout like spit comes out of their mouth people are going to flinch up now that's a very different thing right like when i was doing Macbeth on the greenwich stage and i was shouting you know the spit was definitely flying at people on the front row like i'd go to prison for that now you know there's, there's so many things that we have to get like uh reacclimatized to as we uh you know start getting back into rehearsal rooms and theatres and you know all sorts of uh, different types of performance like that maybe we'll need to create some sort of splash zone um maybe you know <laughs> maybe there needs to be maybe i don't know we could do branded ponchos uh you know for the first three rows you you might yeah. get wet um that's a uh, exciting thing to think about, isn't it? Blimey. Who wants to go? Maybe, I just don't know whether how you price a splash zone, though. Is it cheaper or more expensive? I mean, I sort of think, go for it. You know, I want to be the first three rows and I want to experience the splash zone. Um, yeah. OK, well, that's food for thought, isn't it? to a few other bits and bobs you've done with us then I suppose um Edward the second so you had a bit of a gap mm. what was it, two years maybe a gap two yeah. years after the Avengers so you you went and recovered from your first foray into the ensemble like and then um, came back yeah. for a bit of Edward the second because the first time we did Edward the second we were doing it as part of the Camden Fringe at the um the lovely Tristan Bates theatre in, in Covent Garden um what do you remember of that time uh, yeah, that was a really um, amazing time in my life. That whole experience, I loved every every second of that. Um, it had been a weird year that year, 2017. Um, it had been quite a quiet one, and I've been working a lot, but not as an not as an actor necessarily. Um, a lot of my side hustle. Um, and I remember it was it was really weird. I'd just been on holiday with a lot of my friends, and I came back. I came back to England, and my friends, by the way, are nine to fivers. They're not actors. Um, and I came back, and I went to see my friend in a show at the Park Theatre. And I was on the train back, and I was thinking, I've got to get back on stage. I hadn't done any stage since the summer of Revenge's Tragedy. That night, you emailed me about Edward II. Um, so I, I probably told you that story before. I can't remember, but it was. No, it was, I don't you know, remember. It was I don't really remember it. No, no I, I don't. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and then anyway, you know, the, the whole, you know, the experience of Edward II, um, that was a great group, you know, um, the time flew by, it was a really hot summer in London, but it was, you know, beautiful, we had a great rehearsal room, and yeah, I just loved every second of that, and the Tristan Bates, you know, performing in there with the set, the way we had it, it just felt incredible, um, yeah, I loved Edward II, I, I really loved that experience was really um, in, uh, quite an interesting one in that we'd, of course, at the Tristan Bates, people who, who know the Tristan Bates, it's quite an intimate, really sort of intense space. And we'd done a few bits and bobs, um, a few shows before Edward there. And I'd sort of felt that we'd kind of nearly cracked the space and then sometimes not quite because it's it, it doesn't have the epic quality. It has the intensity quality, if that, if that makes sense. You feel like you're in this, I don't know, kind of concrete bunker um you know the breeze block and the pipe work you can see and you get told off if it's too loud by the people who live above and it just feels like this really sort of intense um uh cauldron and we kind of then play this but the design team were playing with this idea of it becoming this sort of uh, gladiatorial cube uh that's the word that the, the buzzword of that show was the cube you're entering the cube and we did this mm, sort of yeah. silly thing with the pre-show announcement didn't we that was you know um Edward II will begin in five minutes and almost playing on the idea of show calls, but also like this weird um, game movie quiz show that people will die in. So there's this sort of status. Um, also, interestingly enough, um, doing it in Traverse, uh, sort of having that two sides. And so the audience being really aware of the other side of the audience. And I think it's always risky Traverse because you're looking across at uh, these people who might be very disengaged. <laughs> you know, but I certainly remember with Edward at the Tristan Bates looking across when you could sort of see through the haze and generally seeing shock and horror and <laughs> sometimes despair um, because the play is pretty extreme, you know, and when you do a, a 90 minute or so version of it and you're cutting to the big sort of highlights, it, it, it's event after event after event, um, which was pretty intense. What's it like to play in in a space like that where you've got audience both sides it's no real bigger than sort of four meters you don't have the expanse to to to, to sort of distill like you're intense how how do you remember how it was to sort of play that space you know i think the thing with the tristan bates which is a bit of a gift is that the acoustics are really good in it so I think for me, especially kind of returning to stage, it was a little bit of a uh, a bit of a relief that I I knew I, I wasn't going to be busting a gut trying to, you know, project in there too hard. So that intensity, you know, wasn't, you know, when I, when I then stepped onto the Greenwich stage, I think the following January, I remember thinking like, oh my God, how am I going to be able to level up to the same kind of, um, to the same sort of intensity in this place, because now like we've times the playing space by five or maybe even more, you know, um, it was, it, it felt very, it was, a much, it was a much easier thing to do to create that intensity between us in the Tristan Bates. Once we got into the Greenwich, we had to work a whole lot harder to, to match that. And it's different, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, I, I feel, is it easier? Is it harder? And, and sometimes it's hard to say and actually go, it's just different. It's a different ball game. So it's interesting transferring the same production into a very different space, which as we're looking at the moment now at touring, actually could be quite a useful thing to remember and recall what had to happen to the production when it moved to a very different space. Um, you know, you can either just leave it as it was in its original uh, venue, or you can go. Actually, there's a be responsive to the space, which is which is something that I'm really in, interested in doing. So yes, everything had to get a bit bigger and a bit more intense and a little bit more specific, if I remember. But of course, from an actor's point of view, you're thinking about vocal quality, aren't you? Thinking about filling the space vocally and physically, and of course, it was end on. So one half of the balance on stage is different from the Tristan Bates. You don't have people on either side, or all of a sudden there's you know, two, 300 people on one end. Um, what what do you think about um, spaces? Like as an actor, is it noticeable in performance, the, the difference between, this might sound like a really stupid question. I'm not meaning, you know, there's no red herrings or surprises here. I'm actually genuinely interested because of course as a director, I'm never in them. So I can't, I don't know what it's like to be in the middle of it. But what are the differences between things like Traverse and then uh, somewhere like the Greenwich where they're all almost like an amphitheater at one end? Or do you just go, I'm just going to do it. 
<laughs> like, how conscious are you of it? Well, I, I definitely always feel like I'm just going to do it. But um, I definitely feel every time I get back onto that stage at the Greenwich, I'm, you know, it wears me out that first time when I'm kind of reacclimatizing to it. And I've spoken to other actors um, about this sort of thing, and they say, oh, it's just the same thing. But for me, I definitely feel it. You know, every space is different and it, you know, it, it um, taxes your body in a different sort of way. Um, so for me, you know, definitely the, the energy output changes in, in you know, different ways, depending on the space you're in. And then how has that developed or has it developed? It might not have developed, I'm assuming. How's that then when you're an actor being, you've been in a show at the Greenwich, so say you, you let's not say, because you were, you're in Edward II in 2018, then return as Herod in 2019, and then you went for the hat trick and had Macbeth in 2020. What's, yeah, the, yeah. what's that thing about, you know, is there something about being an actor returning to a space you've played before? And is there anything particular about, knowing that the production's built for that space. You know, I'm just thinking because I bang on quite a lot about um, the re residency we have at Greenwich Theatre, it's that we're creating work for that building specifically. So we're using the thrust. And then of course, in recent years, we've extended the thrust out into the auditorium and using the gangways and the VOMs and, you know, totally trying to use the whole building rather than just the bit behind the cross arch. I'm always interesting how much of an effect that makes to an actor when they return. So on the third one, What's that feeling? Is there a familiarity or is it you're going to push the space even further? Or, you know, what's, what's, is there a vibe? Or again, do you just walk in and go, I just, just another show, I've got to get on with it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> How conscious are you? No, 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 no. I, I, you know, you, you feel that. You definitely feel that. Your relationship with the, with the space, um, you know, fortifies as time goes on. Um, it's like some, I, I mean, you know, if, if you're a tennis player, you like a certain type of racket, right? Or you get used to the feel of it. Um, and, and you, the way you play, the way you interact with it um, enhances as time goes on. And I'm sure for anyone who's, you know, seen uh, Edward II through to Macbeth, you know, or, or any of the shows that you've done over the time that you've been at the Greenwich, I'm sure they will have seen that progression, you know, from the ensemble um you know progressing and i think there's something about um i mean you know maybe i'm a bit old-fashioned and and uh looking to the glory days of repertory theater but i think there's something really wonderful about an audience getting to know you as well so they see you in one show and another like you've said earlier i suppose you know they may have seen you as mortimer then as herod and then as macbeth and 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 seeing a natural progression or um playing out of stereotype and of course, as you know, lots of actors always say to me, oh, I get offered the same things. And that's why I quite like coming to work with you guys, because you do something else uh, with my casting. I'm not cast always in the obvious role, you know, flipping it around a bit. Um, and that's interesting. And maybe an audience seeing that and, and you develop and grow as an actor. Um, certainly something that I think we're on the cusp of with Macbeth, if we've not already. Um, I once did go, here's a slight off, off piece. I did once go to Greg's. Uh, <laughs> to get a very healthy sausage roll and it was after a matinee of Macbeth and, and was accosted by a member of the public um, in a very positive way just you know and, and they said apparently they'd seen me at a Q&A about another show and and they'd been to see all of them and I thought blimey we need a loyalty card you know we need people like a little Nero scamp you know have you seen all six yeah, shows yeah, yeah. seven and then yeah we stopped with the eight um yeah, um, I'm always intrigued about that sort of that relationship with the space and how I know I think I know how that works as a, as, an, as a director and a designer, but as an actor and, and just knowing the building, what the building can do and, and what the limits and the, and the parameters are, I guess. So went to Edward, as we said, then we went to, to um, Greenwich, did a, a transfer. And then, yes, we come on to Sally Salome, uh, which was a, an interesting process, wasn't it? So, of course, um, quite different, I suppose, really being an Oscar Wilde play, having done all that early modern language, to then go to some sort of symbolic symbolism type writing and Oscar Wilde's quite often blunt and yet poetic uh, approach comparatively to the early modern folks. What do you remember, what do you remember of Salome's time? Yeah, Salome was, um, I suppose like if I, you know, I, I spoke earlier about maybe the rigidness of some of the things that I've done before. And I felt with Salome, like the, you know, the real challenge of trying to play King Herod, I, I completely had to like throw, throw the reins away and just kind of leap into it and kind of grow crazy with that one. 
and you know, I suppose that rehearsal room, you know, um, at times it, it was kind of a slow process, but actually like, you know, I, I felt comfortable with those people to really take some risks there. And, um, you know, and, and again, that ensemble that we'd created, you know, I, I still felt like I could, you know, as I say, throw the reins away and just kind of go with the madness of King Herod through that, through that process. Um, I felt very lucky to play that part where I suppose you just, you know, let, let your hair down and just go with, go with Oscar Wilde's text there. Uh, you know, he was on opium, wasn't he, in Paris when he wrote that play. So you really like, you're really looking into a man's kind of deepest, darkest parts of himself. And yeah, a crazy, crazy experience. I think I started calling it Salome, open brackets, the madness of King Herod, close brackets. And that's re really the title is that this, this guy actually is, Herod's going completely uh, mad, you know, madness. Something that Shakespeare and the early modern writers, I think, um, are really obsessed with, madness, the idea of being mad. Uh, but but Oscar Wilde sort of plunges into that as well, don't we? This man in a blooming cistern who's uh, preaching and shouting this all this sort of abuse mainly at uh, Herodias or Herodias, however you want to pronounce it. But yeah, um, but the, the, the madness, I suppose, of Herod comes in that he's seeing things, isn't he? He's seeing things and signs. He's seeing signs in everything, paranoia. And it's sort of fantastic to watch this sort of, I mean, it might not be to play, I don't know, but it's fantastic to watch this tyrant being destroyed, really. I always remember thinking in Salome, none of them are particularly redeeming. They're all a bunch of bastards. So we sort of all, we want to see them all destroyed, really. And that was kind of... Um, part of the joy in a way <laughs> yeah it sounds a bit bit crazy doesn't it but part of the joy of the process or part of the play is watching these awful awful indulgent people being destroyed um kind of cathartic in a weird way in the audience watching these people being one by one destroyed a bit sick but very cathartic because of course as, as, as an audience you're sort of experiencing that um as you go yeah that madness of king herod the the, the great or, or whatever and maybe it's one i think i know we've talked about it a couple of times uh, just sort of privately but maybe it's one we should come back to and sort of see it feels to me like it's the show out that, that you've done with lazarus that kind of could have done with a bit more cooking um and maybe even a, even a bit more madness actually uh, not necessarily from herod but but the production and um, something that just needs dialing up in terms of its extremes like you say, the, you know, the writer's sort of begging for it. He's picked this incredible story and then just goes for it. But um, Especially yeah. when you compare it to everything else he wrote. Mm. You know, like one, one of the plays I've revisited this lockdown has been um, The Importance of Being Earnest and An Ideal Husband, both by Wilde. And it's just this quippy, sharp, tight dialogue. And, you know, like there's just no comparison whatsoever really when you read something like Salome and you think this is the same guy like it's so interesting when you're trying to observe where he was in his life when he wrote it yeah and it's it's I totally and I think the um one of the reasons Salome appeals to me actually because I'm not a huge Oscar Wilde fan please don't write in people we don't have a PO box um I'm not a fan of Oscar Wilde I'll, I'll put that on record but actually um yeah, I, the, the, I think that's the reason why I really do like Salome, actually. It's not like anything else or uh, that he's done. But um, yeah, I, I think it's the ruthlessness and the, the, the vile. Some of them are vile, which was hilarious. You know, there's, 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 there's laughter and cruelty. And, and, and certainly remember some performances, the crueler that we were uh, on stage, the more hilarious it is in the audience. And it's one of the shows, you know, Jamie, it's one of my, I call them the problem children, the troubled ones. And when you look back at your productions and I, I, I you know, I, as we've talked about privately, I wasn't, you know, entirely enamored by, by the whole thing and the whole process, but it's the show that I get the most people talking about still. Oh, I loved, oh, and all the gold balloons and the gold floor and, and the bit with the plastic and the ripping of the, or the you know, and all this sort of stuff. And it's, it's so interesting how for some, you know, whatever it was hooked in people and people talk about your Herod all the time. And then I say, oh, did you see, you know, Jamie Doom at Beth. Oh no, was it any good? And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, there's no justice in the world. <laughs> but so interesting what catches people's sort of emotion. And of course the audience don't know what the process has been like at all. They don't know, you know, they have no idea how you got there, do they? They just know what you've got at the end. But um, yeah, really interesting.
And then, of course, um, on to Mr. Mackey B, Mr. Macbeth. Uh, what do you remember uh, of that time? I mean, I just look back at that with, you know, that it was, you know, we, we finished that days before the, uh, the lockdown on March 16th. So um, it's just complete and utter happiness thinking back to that time and feeling incredibly lucky that we got to share that experience um, when it really was, you know, at its most precious, like it was all taken away from us not too long after that. Um, yeah, I, you know, just complete and utter joy at the fact that we got to do it, you know. It feels a bit, a bit looking back at it now to me, feels a bit like that scene in, um, is it the Raiders of the Lost Ark? The Indiana Jones thing where he goes and grabs the hat under the, the door that's closing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Macbeth feels to me a little bit like the hat that we got there just before the door had closed on it. You know, yeah. unfortunately, we weren't quick enough for Hedda Gabler, but um, Macbeth sort of got just underneath the closing door of doom. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, interesting. And um, one thing that I've noticed about, I've sort of taken a little trip down the memory lane of production shots. Have you ever done a play with us where you've worn shoes? Um, yeah, Salome, I wore shoes. Did you? Oh, I could just see, yeah, I did, yeah. Did you? you? I can't, no, I didn't. I didn't. It was, it was Macbeth that I did wear shoes. We wore shoes for the first half, and then we, and then we, um, got rid of them for the second half. That was it. Uh Originally, I think in Salome that we were going to, and then all the costumes changed a bit last minute. Um, uh, but no, it was Macbeth, it was Macbeth where, uh, we had we had shoes the first half. That's it, and there were some boots going around, wasn't there? I do remember falling over a pair of people's boots at some stage. Uh, yeah, what's it like? Now, this is funny, you know, because uh, it, there was a bit of Twitter action. Um, I can't remember when this was, some round point of 2019. You know, all these damn shows, not having damn shoes. <laughs> and I suppose it's just, it became a bit in vogue. The reason I like no shoes is the actor's feet connect to the floor. There's something kind of um, almost, a, it allows the kind of timelessness as well. I think you can tell an awful lot from shoes. So when you don't have them, there's a kind of, um, I don't know, it's not necessarily obscurity, but a kind of timelessness to it. I'm not sure whether that's right, but if it was, what's it like performing barefoot compete with, uh, compared to with shoes? It's very informative on this podcast. I am genuinely interested though. Like, what does it feel like? Maybe I'm just frustrated actor again. Maybe I just need to do a show. Anyway, go on. Yeah, it, I mean, it's different, isn't it? It's different for every single show that we've done. Um, you know, you feel different performing every single one. Um, I suppose there's something, is something to that, being connected to the ground, feeling more uh, present maybe. Um, but every single one feels different. So it'd be very hard to kind of say, mm. really, you know. Nippy, maybe nippy, that's what it feels like. When you do wearing, get when... cold, yeah, your, your toes <laughs> do go a bit blue. Yeah. I you don't want to some... walk into a chair. <laughs> no, no, that's, yes, you definitely do not want to walk into a chair barefoot. Uh, muscle memory, folks. Um, yeah, and I picked out a few uh, highlights, if you will. And um, and here's some of your highlights. I thought, it's interesting how, uh, maybe we need to test this on the next thing you do with us. Uh, you're always suitably moody in the production shots, suitably moody. You've played some quite moody people. Are you moody? Uh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes I am, yeah. Yeah, no, it is, yeah, they're, they're all dark, aren't they? It, it's one of your things, you know, you've got that kind of intensity, which I think's great, actually. I, I, I love that sort of um, core strength intensity. You know, there's moments where you can um, see someone stood on stage and you don't, you know, seemingly doing nothing. And of course, they're not doing nothing, but there's a presence and a stillness. But they could, they're a coiled spring that could, um, you know, burst at any point, really. I always remember a, a friend of mine, uh, some swearing coming up for you listeners, if you're frightened of that um, or offended by that. Uh, but uh, a friend always said to me about you, you never know whether he's going to uh, kill you or fuck you. And um, I thought, well, that could be quite good for a CV opener, couldn't it? <laughs> you don't know whether he's going to kill you or fuck you oh. at the times. Um, and actually, that's quite a nice balance. In early modern Elizabethan drama, that's actually a brilliant balance. You don't know what he's... And those two things are quite different. So that's, that's quite an extreme kind of, wow, like I'm on edge. Um, Red Hot Pokers. That's another one that... Uh, well, not Pokers, there was only the one. But the red hot poker of the the, the um, killing of Edward the Second. What do you remember about that 
Uh, well, it was really hot. I almost burnt myself on it, you know. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I tell you what I do remember about that is I remember when um, when we did it with Luke Ward Wilkinson at Tristan Bates. I remember that show where uh, the table collapsed and he came sliding off of it just after we'd poked him in the you know <laughs> in the bum of it. <laughs> yes. And I was always the guy who handed it. I was always the guy who handed it to Gaveston as well. So I didn't quite get to do the job, but I, I was part of it, you know, a crucial part of that pokering. Yes, because we, we played the idea that Mortimer wouldn't get his hands dirty, but would be implicit in the murder, i.e. Mortimer would, would be the one who decided how to kill Edward, but wouldn't actually do himself. So yes, we sort of saw that, didn't we, him pass the, the poker, which actually in our version was a sort of religious looking candelabra that had pieces taken off it to become a very pointed, jagged end. So we knew exactly where it was going, didn't we, when he started de deconstructing it. Uh, yes, oh my God, that was a performance of intensity, wasn't it? You know, this wonderful table, and we had this table, and we we played in in the idea that the table could collapse, and in the end we thought, no, we won't. So we secured it all and, and everything, but there was one particular performance where the, he was really lashing around, wasn't he, Luke? He was really having a go on this table. And of course, then it rained blood on top of him, so it was a wee bit slippy. And we'd say health and safety the hell out of this thing. And then that performance, for some, you know, the adrenaline must have been going, the whole thing go, and it slipped, didn't it? Well, you know you know what it was? It was, um, that was the performance where the, where we got held up. There was like a, a technical glitch. Yes. And and the audience, they, they, you know, they stayed, credit to them. It wasn't too long, but, you know, they all stayed and everyone was in good good spirits. But that, that performance definitely did have an extra intensity to it, I think, because of that. You know, we were aware that the people had been waiting a bit longer. Um, so we, you know, came out with a bit more of a point to prove, maybe. It was crazy performance. And, of course, that's the great thing about Ensemble, isn't it, that actually people were there to catch Luke, protect Luke, and everyone was fine and everything was safe and there was nothing uh, majorly dangerous about it. But blimey, add an extra dimension to it, didn't it? Um, and what a trooper, eh? He was a trooper. So see, I always remember saying to Luke, so what's going to happen, Luke, is... <laughs> and just took him through the raining of blood poker section and he just turned to me and went, brilliant, brilliant. You know, this is fantastic. Yeah, get me on it. You know, it's so weird. But, um, and again, that just proves, doesn't it? You know, there's, everything's possible when everyone's obviously working safely, but everybody's up for it or everyone's um, invested. You know, um, totally, totally brilliant. Um, I've said about the rain blood. I've said blood twice because, of course, Macbeth got quite messy, didn't he? Um, with his blood all over him. What's it like working with blood on you? I imagine it's quite fun, but then a bit irritating when you have to get it off. Is that true? Well, the, the blood in Macbeth was great because it was like this weird sticky stuff. So I, I would like dunk my hands in it. And it was really, it was really kind of, it was very different to the blood we'd used before. Before it was much more watery. This stuff was thick. It was like syrup. And I just, you know, I, I quite enjoyed actually smearing it up myself. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was good blood. Um, you know, when you, I, I suppose the first time you do it. Actually, do you know what the thing was about that as well? Was I would apply the blood in the dark. So I did not, I didn't, I had no idea what it would look like until I walked out on stage. And, you know, I would kind of see it as an actor for the first time. Obviously, Macbeth's already aware of it. But I, as an actor, would actually see it for the first time as I hit the lights. And it was, you know, it was different every time. Well, there was one performance that I think you were very overzealous and you'd sort of come out. And I think I'd only popped in through the back, as it were, uh, of the auditorium. I wasn't meant to be watching the show. I just thought, oh, I'll pop my head around this moment. I thought, blimey, he's gone for it tonight. I don't think there's any left in the tray. And you you actually looked at it genuinely surprised. I'm like, God, where's this come from? I thought, that's kind of brilliant. I mean, gosh, we're getting into method acting, aren't we? But, you know, there's something really wow about this, this impact. And of course, the red, it's so red. And when the lights hit, boom, you know, uh, really powerful. Talk to me about, um, I know we're running out of time, but coronations. Yeah, there's been a lot of those, hasn't there? Um, Edward the second, we had a coronation, didn't we? Yep. Um, and then we had three and Macbeth. Three and Macbeth, yeah. I mean, the timing was <laughs> the hardest part of the coronations, I think. It's just making sure you're, you're getting the timing right. Nothing like a bit of movement to wind us up, is it? <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. And the gown acting. God, we, we had uh, Sorcerer on the other week and we were talking about that blumming gown, the king's gown and getting the gown in the right place and then on the right place and then the popper coming off and then 
it all goes to pot. Um, yeah, maybe we, maybe the creatives remember more about that than the actors do. <laughs> well, but yeah, do you know what? It's funny. I, I, yeah, I'll say it. So that was one of the things where like we were all really struggling to get the gown to sit right, all of us. And then you were getting kind of more and more frustrated and you would come over and you would in one fell swoop, like perfectly execute this jacket around the dummy. And we were all, the, the more you got like annoyed, the more we stressed and were like messing up the way we put it on. Like, yeah. So I do remember that. That was like an afternoon, wasn't it? Afternoon yeah. Friday, probably trying to get that done. An awful tech rehearsal ensued as well. And one day it ended up with mm. someone's head. The other day it was inside out. The once it was on the shoulder, it was just, and I, and, and Sorcia remembers fondly me turning around and going, I'm never working with gowns ever again. Yeah. <laughs> it was all in the flick of the wrist. We just couldn't get it. No, well, hopefully can now. Um, yeah, uh, lovely, lovely, lovely. Uh, great. We're going to go over to um, Gavin now for the uh, 60 second challenge. Yeah, great. Um, okay, Jamie, uh, the rules are simple. Um, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. Uh, you've got 30 seconds and we're going to see how many you can answer in that 30 seconds. Uh, you can pass, um, but it won't add to your final score. Uh, we'll end your score oh, so up. This is a competition then. Oh yes, oh, yes, yes. Oh yeah. So we've already had one person, uh, she's currently leading the leaderboard. Uh, I'll tell you her score at the end. Apart from my rehearsal score. Of course, your rehearsal score was skyrocketed, Ricky, skyrocketed. Um, to ensure we keep time, we do have the clock in front of us, but also Ricky holding the lovely air horn that was used by John Slade and Edward II. Uh, he'll uh, give us a honk at the end of the 60 seconds. Can we have a practice honk, please? Cover your ears, listeners. Well done. So did you hear that, Jamie? I did, yeah. That, means that, you, that means that you will not be able to answer any more questions and your score will be final. Okay, so Jamie, are you ready? Best of luck. ready. Ricky, are you ready? Here we go with 60 seconds on the clock. Jamie, beer or wine? Beer. Cake or biscuit? Cake. What was your first job? Cleaner. What are you most afraid of? Spiders. What's the one thing about you that surprises people? Oh. oh. God, I don't know. oh. How, how can I answer that? That's for other people to answer. <laughs> you can pass. Pass. Now, what's the first career you dreamed of having as a kid? Actor. If you could win an Olympic medal for any sport, real or fake, what would it be? Uh, boxing. Uh, if you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? <laughs> Astrophysicist. <laughs> uh, if, if you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with your extra time? Oh, so I actually, uh, I would always sleep. I know what it's like not to sleep, and it's horrific. So. <laughs> okay, and uh, sweet or savoury? Uh, savoury. Oh, savoury just got in there, just got in there. Thumbs up. How many do you think you got, Jamie? I feel like that was eight, maybe. Eight? Okay, if I told you that Saoirse last week got ten, do you think you uh, beat her or, or not? No, Saoirse's no. done this one. Well, I can tell you that you also got ten. So oh. it's a tie for the top of the leaderboard. There we go, congratulations. Wow. <laughs> we'll uh, wow. be sending your tied medal uh, in the mail. I, I wait with bated breath. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't. We need you, we need you for next year. <laughs> <laughs> Very well done. Um, yeah, and of course we didn't really have time to talk about our R&D exploration that we did with Dr. Faustus, but um, maybe that's another one for another one. Um, mm. And we can talk more about Dr. Faustus and um, another moody type uh, that has blood and probably barefoot. Anyway, <laughs> variations on a theme. Um, brilliant. Huge thanks to you, Jamie, for joining for us, uh, joining us today. Uh, it's been fantastic to talk. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Gavin, for the 60 second challenge there. Thank that you. was marvellous. I uh, still am actually the winner because I got 14 right. But um, obviously that's just saying. Uh, well, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our Facebook page, our Twitter profile, at Lazarus Theatre. And there's lots of bits and bobs on our Instagram, uh, also at Lazarus Theatre. Uh, all the details can be found on our website, which is www.lazarustheatre.com. 
I've been Ricky Dukes. And I've been Gavin Harrington Ardetra. And until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work that Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash Lazarus hyphen supporters. Or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Every bit counts. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington Odedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertile Brandt.